We're continuing our look at the life of David. And we're in a particularly dark period of revelation about King David. What I'm going to do is something I don't usually do. I, I like to take a section of Scripture and expound upon it. But we're going to cover, a, we're going to cover about 11 chapters um, in 2 Samuel. So buckle up. We'll be here for about three or four hours. We're going to read from chapter 12, verses 9 to 12, chapter 13, verses 19 to 22, and chapter 18, 31 to 33, just to give you uh, a glimpse at the destructive path that sin um, brought David through after committing adultery with Bathsheba, and to remind us of the destructive nature of sin and why it is that we want to keep the commandments of God and root out evil in our own lives and pursue holiness. So, let's take up God's Word, beginning in 2 Samuel 12. Verses 9 to 12, and this is Nathan the prophet speaking a word of the Lord after exposing David's sin of adultery and murder. The prophet says to David in verse 9, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. And have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. Then if you'll turn to chapter 13, verses 19 to 22, this is the uh, effect of some of the dysfunction in the life and the family of David. His son Amnon rapes his sister Tamar, and we read uh, about that in chapter 13, beginning in verse 19. And Tamar Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe, robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Then if you'll turn to chapter 18 records the end of another period of dysfunction. David's son, Absalom, kills his brother Amnon, then flees from David, is brought back to Jerusalem, and plots 
a rebellion against David, causing David and his counselors to flee the city. Uh, David and his men then defeat Absalom and his troops, and David regains the throne. But here it is, the end of that section, um, 2 Samuel 18, beginning in verse 31. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And he went... And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. This is the word of the Lord. On Easter Sunday, April 12th, At about 4.50 in the afternoon, a historic weather event occurred in the state of Mississippi. A powerful tornado spanning 2.25 miles wide touched down in Jefferson Davis County and churned a 67-mile path of destruction, finally stopping in Clark County, Mississippi. The tornado was the widest ever recorded in the history of Mississippi and the third widest in the the United States, in weather history in the United States. Now, to give you some perspective, if our church was at the center of that tornado, the storm would have stretched to my right down to Kroger, the grocery store. To my left, Friendship Cemetery. That was the span. So it would have taken out all of downtown Main Street in Columbus, Mississippi. And it would have been that wide and then set a a destructive path past Tuscaloosa for another 10 miles. So just think about that. The, the, The storm, there are before and after satellite photos where they can see the path of this storm from satellite imagery. People, obviously, uh, were killed in the midst of the storm. There's on-the-ground video that depicts uh, trees being snapped off, just a path of trees, big pine trees and oaks and all types of trees, about five or six feet off the ground, just snapped in in half by the power of the storm. Now, like that tornado, that Easter tornado, sin is spiritually, relationally, and emotionally destructive. David's sin with Bathsheba left a trail of of destruction recorded for us in nine of the remaining 11 chapters in the book of 2 Samuel. That is a lot of biblical material dedicated to this story. It's remarkable, really. 
we're going to dig in and, and look at this and see what we can learn from sin's destructive path in the life of, of David. And hopefully uh, to stir our, ourselves up to pursuing holiness in our lives and resisting sin and temptation. First thing that we're going to look at as we examine this is sin's downward spiral. The final portion of David's life is, is heartbreaking. I don't know if, if you have read uh, from chapter 12 in 2 Samuel to the end of the chapter. It is depressing. It is dark. It is upsetting to read about and to think about. Eugene Peterson, who has written a commentary on the life of David, says this, The story of David and Bathsheba occurs in David's mature years, when he's in his prime, having passed through hard testings, those with, with Saul and others, uh, and in testing been shown to be a loyal friend, a courageous leader, a wise king. So the first thing I want to mention to you and especially those who are in the latter stages of your life, don't think that you are safe from failure, moral failure, from sin, and from temptation. It's not just in your youth that those things are a greater threat to you spiritually. David is, is in his mature years. He should have known better. He's deeply meditated and, and thought through and carefully read and studied the Word of God. And yet he still falls subject to the sinful tendencies of his own heart. So a word of caution, you are just as vulnerable, just as capable, just as easily tempted in your latter days as you are in your youth. So be on guard. Don't relax. Don't think you have arrived in some spiritually safe place. But now I want us to begin to chart the path of, of David's sin using that imagery of that, that tornado just churning through 76 or 67 miles of Mississippi countryside. Think about what started as David on his rooftop. He should have been with his men at battle. And he innocently, I truly believe this, he innocently looks out over the city and his eye fixes on this woman bathing, Bathsheba. Now he had options there. He could have turned away for good. He could have said, no, this is not right. I need to guard my heart. But he takes a further look. And that leads to him inviting her into his palace and committing sexual sin with Bathsheba. This sin then led to a cover-up. David was ashamed. He was guilty. He, didn't, he was the, the sweet psalmist of Israel. He didn't want Israel to know this dark side of David, this dark deed that he had committed. So he lies, he manipulates, and ultimately, in cold-hearted fashion, he murders Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And God holds him accountable to that. We need to understand that sin, even for the children of God, sin has consequences. 
God places David under divine discipline. In Second um, Samuel 12, we read about that. <clears throat> This is David, the, the beloved man of God, who God describes him as a man after my own heart. And in verse 11, we read this, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. David's family... God says, will be dysfunctional in a very severe way as we read through the story. The curse um, plays out in chapter 13. Uh, it starts with the incestuous rape of Ammon, Amnon, David's son, who rapes Tamar, his sister. It's unimaginable some of the things that are described to us in the Word of God in this story. And I want you to think about what the devastation of David's sin in the life of his daughter. It ruins her life. We're told in chapter 13 that she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. She was broken and crushed. She was in their society and in their, their culture. She was damaged goods. She would never be married, never experience the possibility of birthing children. All of that ruined. And it can all be traced back to David and Bathsheba. There are direct relationships here. This infuriates David, and understandably so. Amnon's wickedness, incestuous rape, leads to uh, his murder. Absalom, his brother, is infuriated, and he waits for the opportune time when he can execute justice on his brother for the wrongs he has done, and he murders him. This places unresolved tension between David and his son Absalom. Absalom flees Jerusalem, flees from the presence of his father for a time, and then is brought back. But the, the relationship is, is deeply, deeply damaged. David and Absalom never really connect again as father and son. And Absalom responds to this by conducting a rebellion against David. He forcibly removes his father from the throne. And ultimately, David's army puts a stop to this. Absalom is killed. And again, David feels the weight and the pain of the consequences of sin. We see it emotionally brought out in the last verse of chapter 18. Oh, my son Absalom, my son my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And if you're a father sitting in here today, I'm sure you can sympathize with the depth of grief experienced by David at the loss of yet another of his sons. David's sin resulted in a path of painful 
destruction. And we need to understand this. Sin is destructive. Sin leads to death. Why should we be so careful to uphold the law of God? I mean, aren't we covered by the blood of Jesus anyway? Is it okay to allow ourselves to be tempted and drawn into the path of sinful living? We live in a moral universe set up that way by the sovereign Lord of the universe. Behavior matters. Sin has catastrophic consequences. The church needs, and Christian individually, we need to proclaim, to protect, to promote, to explain, to teach the law of God because it is good for human flourishing. It is good for societies and families and churches and cultures. Thou shalt not worship a foreign god. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. Thou shalt not commit adultery or steal or lie. And then thou shalt remember the Sabbath day. Thou shalt honor your father and mother. These are good. I wonder if it took this experience for David to pen some of the words he writes about the law in the Psalms. Psalm 19. Hear what David says. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eye. Then in Psalm 119, a psalm full of admiration for the law, David says this. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. I've learned my lesson, Lord. I've seen the devastating effects of sin. I want to do what pleases you. I want to live a righteous life. I want to do what is holy and good because I've seen my sin affect my family. I've seen my sin affect the nation that I'm ruling. I've seen my sin affect my own heart, crush my spirit within me. It's interesting, later in that psalm, David says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. He needed discipline. He needed to feel the sting before he oriented his heart around the will of God. And maybe we need that too. No doubt we need that too. Maybe some of you are living a secret life. There's things that you're doing and the Spirit is gnawing away at you. Maybe God is speaking to you, calling you to initiate repentance, and to seek His power for change. 
so that you can walk in the ways of the Lord. God's law is a merciful safeguard protecting humanity from the dangerous consequences of sin. The second thing I want us to see is the death of sin in this story. Like I said, we begin in chapter 11, and we run through pretty much the entirety of the remainder of 2 Samuel, with the the main theme being the darkness of David's sin and the effects that that has. Where does this destruction end? You know, as you're reading the story, think about it in terms of reading narrative. You're reading chapter after chapter. When is it going to stop? When when are we going to hear God intervene and put an end to this miserable state of affair that David is experiencing? Peterson again says this, Sin fed on sin. The rape of Tamar fed into the murder of Amnon, which fed into the hard-heartedness of David. Absalom responded to Amnon's sin by sinning. Then David responded to Absalom's sin by sinning. It was a a perpetuating, a self-perpetuating cycle that was created. Is it never-ending? Now I would say this, that David's sin cycle is is a part of something bigger. David can trace his sin back to who? Adam and Eve in the garden. You can trace your sin back to them. They were the ones who started it all, who set the course for humanity in rebellion against God. But I want you to turn to the very last verse of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 25. Where does it end? This chapter is talking about a census that David called for, and it was deemed as sinful. There's many um, beliefs and views about why it was sinful, but uh, God cursed David and punished the nation of Israel because of that. Many people lost their lives due to this divine discipline. But look at the last verse. This is when it stops. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Where did it stop? On an altar where an animal was sacrificed, where God's judgment, His judicial hatred of sin was poured out no longer on David, no longer on his family, no longer on the Israelite people, but on a a substitute, a sacrifice. And we know as uh, believers in the New Testament age that that is a symbol, a picture, a type of the final sacrifice. Jesus Christ on the cross. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul says, Christ 
redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul there says, For our sake He made, this is the Father, the Father made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So where does the cycle of sin end? At the cross. The cycle of sin, sin is put to death on the cross by Jesus, the Savior. And you notice this pattern in David's life as he commits catastrophic sin after catastrophic sin, he goes to the altar. You see it in Psalm 51 after committing sin with Bathsheba. You see it after the census. He goes to the altar. Do you remember what Jesus said on the cross? What his last words were? It is finished. What's finished? The destructive path of sin. He is the way to end it. He is the only way to end it. This tragic, these tragic events told to us, recorded for us in the second half of 2 Samuel teach us how God humbled David, how God renewed his trust in the Lord and in the Lord alone. And how God created in David a hunger for God's grace. David became fully convicted that his only hope of the blessed life comes through God's grace given to us in Jesus Christ. How can you experience something other than the destructive path that David went through? You continue to put your trust day after day in Jesus Christ. You continue to take your sins to His altar and to have them cleansed by His precious blood. You continue to beg and plead for Him to give you power, transformative power, to be renewed in His image and not the image of Adam anymore. Listen to David in Psalm 32. He's no longer pursuing his own righteousness. Blessed, he said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You see, that's the only way this man could find himself blessed of the Lord. Look at what he did. He committed adultery. He committed murder. It spun this life of dysfunction in his family, dysfunction in his kingdom. How could he claim his own righteousness before the throne of God? And you and I are no better than David. How can you claim any other righteousness but plead the blessedness that comes from the grace of Christ as David did in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Brothers and sisters, that is the blessing of the gospel promise. Cling to Jesus. Hope in Jesus. Keep your faith in Jesus to the very end. Amen. Father, we come before you 
and it, it is troubling to us to read what is going on in the life of David in these chapters in 2 Samuel. It is disturbing immorality and dysfunction. And we plead with you, Lord, that none of us would have to experience that. But Lord, we also see the fruit of it in what it did to David, how it humbled him, how it forced him to trust in you and not himself, not his own righteousness. Oh Lord, we pray that we would understand the importance of the law and the importance of the cross. Amen.